Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, we have another inspirational serial entrepreneur on the show. Our guest is John Lehman, who serves as faculty director of executive education at Vanderbilt Owen Graduate School of Management. He also serves as a mentor, consultant, and board advisor to early stage companies. Prior to joining Owen, John served as the CEO of a healthcare IT company that he led to a merger with a Canadian public company. He was also an early stage investor and served as executive vice president and director of an international computer training company that was later acquired by a leading educational software company. He also founded and served as a principal of a venture development firm. John is clearly an accomplished serial entrepreneur with an even clearer passion for business and a vast wealth of knowledge he draws upon as we ask him about entrepreneurship, business development, and the evaluation of a nascent business idea. His experience has afforded him invaluable insights into what it takes to become successful as an entrepreneur. He's learned worthwhile lessons through both success and failure and helped many others along the way, including early interest and investment in alpha investing. He shares many insights into some of the most common mistakes that early entrepreneurs make and how best to avoid them. In addition to valuable tips for navigating any professional career, we touch on the importance of partnerships and how to best maneuver the various challenges presented therein, particularly as the functions of businesses grow in complexity. There is so much to learn from this episode, not only for all the entrepreneurial insights that John shares, but also, and very importantly, his perspective on investing wealth and meaning. John, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, your background spans entrepreneurship across multiple different categories. And we're really excited to have you on because in addition to being this entrepreneur in multiple spaces, you're also a real estate investor. You're also in academia and there's so much to learn from you. So where I'd like to start um, is if you could tell us your, your story. Sure. So I, I grew up in South Florida in Coral Gables, right up the street from the University of Miami. And early on, I got, I got my insurance license because my dad was in the insurance business and he used to have me tag along on calls with him. And so I learned about selling small group insurance and life insurance in that process and did that during college. I went away to uh, Colgate, which at the time for me coming from South Florida was the frozen tundra of, of New York. And when I was there, I started getting interested in the entrepreneurship area. And we started a, a small entrepreneurship sort of advisory group for small businesses up there in upstate New York. 
I then worked for a couple of years. First job out of college was as a stockbroker. So I applied, I learned about finance in that process and it was also the selling from the financial services area before that. And then I went uh, into consulting for a couple of years because I knew I was going to go back to business school. I ended up going to Harvard Business School, was very interested in, in learning about how to run my own business and, and start one. But of course, I went into consulting for a little while before that, went to work for McKinsey. Uh, but my hope was that I would, be, I would learn about the media industry. That was something that piqued my interest. And I had worked for Capital Cities Communication, which was a Warren Buffett investment at the time that also kind of pulled into this whole theme of how to be a successful investor and how to think about things. And so this has been kind of an ongoing thing that's building with me for, for a long time. I ended up getting engaged after business school going to Nashville and started out on an entrepreneurial journey. We started a business with a couple of classmates in the employee benefits field. That was a great example of how not to start a business, learned a lot from that process. And then the next one uh, was a, I found a company that was just getting started out in California. They were doing computer training centers for kids. We built that up to 350 locations in 30 countries. We ended up selling that, that business off. My role in that was as an investor, but also in business development. So I worked with a lot of the top companies, Compaq, IBM, Apple, uh, a lot of the software companies at the time um, to help build that business. After that, I worked on a couple of smaller projects and then hooked up with a friend who was a radiologist to start one of the first teleradiology businesses. We ended up morphing that into a software company by the time we merged that with a public company, we were in about 150 locations serving hospitals and imaging centers. So that's how I learned about the healthcare space, which then led to uh, me being on an advisory board for Vanderbilt University, trying to determine whether or not there should be a healthcare program at the business school. And in that process, I became a huge cheerleader for that. But I was in this transition where I had left my role as CEO of the technology company, and they asked if I'd be interested in, in running the program. So I jumped over to academia with, with literally zero experience and said, sure, because to me, it felt like an entrepreneurial project. I had a Vanderbilt brand. I had a receptive market in the healthcare industry in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, a lot of interest from folks wanting to get into that industry. So we envisioned how to create one of the top programs in the country, and, and that's what we did. And we actually were putting more students into the healthcare field than programs probably six or seven times our size. So I've been at Vanderbilt um, since then. As, as I have continued to morph, and this has been now 15 years, I continue to have the entrepreneurial bug, and periodically I will jump off and work on projects, often with former students to start things up. Alpha is actually one of those opportunities. And so I recognized early on that I thought this was a really cool idea for them and wanted to support them. So I came on as an advisor and also an early stage investor. So that brings me up kind of to where we are now. I continue to have other entrepreneurial projects that I'm doing, but I love the teaching aspect of it. And I work very closely still with the medical center at Vanderbilt working with physicians and physician leaders in the organization. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit later. 
Yeah, it's my my first question for you when you mentioned that you got interested in entrepreneurship. What did that look like for you? Were you entrepreneurial as like as a as a kid like growing up or what's what sparked the interest and when did you realize you were or wanted to be an entrepreneur? I that's a that's a great question. I was actually wicked shy as a as a kid. I mean, I would avoid answering the phone because if I didn't know who was calling, I didn't want to be on the call. So so it wasn't it wasn't early like that, but what I found was I loved problem solving. And I loved figuring out, okay, if here's the problem, how do we how do we do this? So I made models as a kid and I I often tried to figure out how to how to work something. And so how do things fit together? what's the end product going to look like and sort of it, it it helped develop that aspect and then with my dad being in financial services that's a very entrepreneurial business and i think i picked up some of that but ultimately it's what i learned was it's it's about if you can find a need that somebody has and you can solve that for them ultimately that can potentially turn into a business now i've i've learned a lot what I call, I, I like to, I'm one of the few faculty at Vanderbilt that do not have a PhD, but I like to say I got mine black and blue by screwing a lot of stuff up along the way. So I've learned a lot of lessons, I think. I mean, I would say as an entrepreneur, if you're not black and blue, then you've done something wrong. Well, I don't know if you've done something wrong, but you haven't done much. Right. I'm sure there are some folks like, you know, if you look at the guys who started Google, I mean, pretty much straight out of the university setting, they got the first one right and, of course, rode that to to, uh, huge success. That's not the normal story. The normal story is that you're going to try a few times. It is it's way harder than it seems and um, you've got to really have a lot of a drive to do things in order to be successful because it, it's, not, it's not a linear thing and it's not poof, I got a great idea. It, it, there is so much more nuance around what's going to take to be successful. Timing, luck, people, connections, capital. I mean, it's complicated. And it's also, I would imagine, about risk. And what you've learned, I would love to understand if you have a philosophy on this or what you've learned around understanding or evaluating risk in entrepreneurial ventures. Sure. So let me say this. I think the stereotype of an entrepreneur is that they're kind of a gambler, that they, they're willing to you know, roll the dice, play the roulette wheel or whatever. What I have found is that successful entrepreneurs are about mitigating risk. And we often use the term de-risking an idea. So what does that mean? It means usually business ideas turn on a few critical assumptions. And what we try to do is test those assumptions early with limited resources to see if, in fact, our assumption around that is correct. So for example, you might test market an idea. So rather than spending $50 million to launch something, it, you know, you uh, try to do that on a smaller scale. Let me give you a perfect example. We worked in, in our teleradiology business with a company that was trying to, to do, I would say, smaller rural healthcare facilities. The individual running the company had been very successful. He had gotten a lot of capital and he thought he knew how to, to do this particular concept. So they, instead of starting one 
and figuring it out and tweaking it and getting it right, he had the capital because he'd been successful running hospitals to do 10. So he did 10 all at once and the model was flawed from the beginning. So instead, you should have taken the time to get the first one right, mess around with it, and, and so on. And that happens across all kinds of entrepreneurial ventures. You, you want to try to take each critical assumption as you go and find ways to, to test or de-risk that. That's an advantage for a lot of reasons. One, some ideas just don't work. And so it saves you a lot of time and energy. The second thing is, is if you do that, you create value as you go forward in the process. So the more that I can create that shows that there's less risk for an investor, the more likely they're going to value what I have. So for example, if I have initial customers, if I have paying customers, if I have a working service or model or prototype, all those things demonstrate that it, it can work and that creates value in the investor's mind and allows you as the entrepreneur to retain more of the ownership of the company as you go. So risk is, it, it's not gunslinging. It's, it's about how do we manage risk in, in an appropriate fashion and do that over time and, and do things that are lower risk to start with to sort of prove out where we're headed. That's such a great point for such a large number of people in our network because you know even those who aren't entrepreneurs who are W two employees they work in a space where there's some entrepreneurial feel right maybe they're they're doctors or they're they're lawyers and they're having these conversations about you know, how do I go about building wealth is it collecting a paycheck or is it trying to build something you know myself and there's a lot of decisions that they're trying to make and I think you're spot on the optic publicly about entrepreneurs, you know, they're gamblers. They like to get out there and, and be risk takers. And, and what you're saying is, a, is I think it will be very helpful to the people in our network to understand that you know, the behavior they probably have now can be helpful in that environment. And so in that regard, you know, you started uh, a company with a partner, a radiologist. I think people will be interested to hear just a little bit about how that partnership worked, the, the differing roles, the different kind of personalities that come into uh, creating a successful venture on stage one. And then, you know, as the company evolves, you know, how that dynamic changes as well. Sure. Well, let's talk about partnership in general or team aspect. I think as an investor, I look to the team that is involved in, in uh, whatever venture they're starting. And I'm looking for personal traits and experience in that team. In the case of our radiology business, the radiologist, my partner, was very entrepreneurial. He had started, he started his own radiology practice. He had started some imaging centers. He, he definitely had this notion of being willing to take some risk and financial risk to move forward. He, however, did not have the, he had the clinical side of the equation and certainly the understanding of the market need but I brought more the financial and operational skills on how to actually build a business. It's one thing to be a, a strong performer. It's another to be able to build a team and understand what it's going to take to go forward. So, so we kind of split things out. He was sort of the lead when we talked about clinical things and, and working to support healthcare institutions and how our services would interface 
with the medical side of the equation. And I would handle kind of the business aspect, the raising of capital to the, the technology infrastructure, kind of all the stuff that we needed to, to build that business. And so I think, you, you know, for a partner, it's like a marriage. You want complementary skills. And, and like a marriage, it, if you're not communicating, if you're not doing the right things to sort of maintain that relationship, it can go sideways. And so I think picking a partner is, uh, is a critical aspect if you're going to start a business of picking the right one. And, and I would say in general, when I think about successful businesses, many of them were started by partners or small kind of core teams, as opposed to the, the lone, you know, the lone ranger, because ultimately it takes a team to be successful. And we kind of assess, do they have all the skill set that they're going to need? And also you, you pick the time when that skill set is required. So for example, you don't need a high-end CFO when you're first starting a business who can talk to you know, Wall Street analysts. You're way before that. What you need is somebody who can manage the books and get your loan from the bank and, and kind of manage cash flow. So that person is very different as you kind of move up the food chain. And so the timing and the skill sets required at different stages of an organization also are, are really critical. So... When you're talking about the partnership and, and Dan referenced, you know, the, the radiologist, I know you really have developed this uh, passion for the health tech space or just the healthcare space. And I would, uh, we would love if you could share a little bit more about some of the lessons that you've learned because, you know, everyone is expert at something different, right? Like your physicians are physicians. Like you said, like you came in as, as the business and the operations and the, and the biz dev in all these years that you've been doing this and you're still doing this, what are some of the key lessons um, that you've learned that you can impart specifically because we have a lot of doctors in our network and I'm sure they're very, they're very open to hearing your experience here. So um, let me, provide a little bit of context. Obviously, we built this teleradiology practice, ultimately a software company. And so I had the opportunity to interface with a lot of radiologists and also a lot of referring physicians in the process of that. In addition, we started a master's in management and healthcare program for Vanderbilt. And I think the reason that program got started is indicative of somewhat answering your question. In a medical center situation, I think in a hospital as well, what you find is that physician leaders in particular generally get moved up for being great physicians. And, and they, they are put in roles where the skills as a physician are not the same skills to be a leader in an organization. Now, they may coexist, in that individual, but they're a different set of skills. So let's say a surgeon, you know, they're prided on making quick decisions, you know, in, in the operating room, what needs to happen, kind of moving that team around, that sort of thing. That kind of, I'll say, hierarchical approach to leadership works in that context. But when it comes to working in an organization where you have to delegate authority, where you have to nurture the, the skills of a team, where you have to be collaborative, where you have to see all sides, 
those personalities may not mesh as well. So we created this master's in management program at Vanderbilt. And there were three kinds of folks that come through the program. Physicians that were moving into leadership roles, nurses that were moving into leadership roles, and administrators, department administrators that were moving up into more administrative roles. And so we wanted to facilitate the ability of those groups to work together well and to understand the the things that they were facing in a different way. So it was, uh, we provided financial skills, operating skills, marketing skills, strategy thinking to those folks so that we'd we'd round out the sort of, if I call the business mind, as opposed to the clinical mind. And I work, I work also in the leadership development programs for the medical center. And I've done that for probably about 10 years. So all the new department chairs and now all the director level folks come through uh, a program where I help them think about strategic thinking and problem solving. And it's what I find is that the brain wiring is almost different when you think about these kinds of issues. So again, coming from this place of sort of scientific trained, brilliant, but having to think of now about an organization and multi-year kind of decision-making and putting skills and capabilities in place it's, it's a different kind of set of, of skills. So I think what I've learned is that as far as the healthcare field goes, is that you, first of all, there are no easy fixes in terms of our, let's, we're talking systemically now about the healthcare field. There are no easy fixes. A lot of the problems that we've had in terms of the way our system works are have been relatively intractable. We do come up with these creative ideas periodically that this is going to be the thing that's going to fix it. And uh, what we find is that we've done that 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and we just call it something else and then bring it back. But I think that there are still lots of opportunities to apply creative thinking, new approaches, and create opportunities to create business ideas and new organizations in the healthcare field every day. And so I I get to see a lot of those new ideas. And then I apply my lens of, well, who's going to be the customer for that? What kind of team is there? And then what are they asking in terms of resources and how likely is it for them to execute on what they want? So let's elaborate on on some of that if we can. So, you know, in your your role at Vanderbilt and your personal investing roles, you're looking at a lot of companies, you know, typically early stage, I imagine, uh, and kind of going through a process of, you know, not just only do these, you know, warrant my my capital, but do they warrant, you know, my time and and attention and and all of those things. And so as you're looking at uh, these companies, what are some of the things that, that you're looking for? How do people go about evaluating you know, what makes sense to get behind and, and what doesn't. Yeah. So I, I would say there are, there are four things. One is the people. Who is behind it? What is their experience? What is their vision? Do they have the skill set required to build this thing? You know, some people are, are 
may have limited experience because it may be a whole new business idea. So you can't get someone who has experience building this thing because it didn't exist before. But I want to try to assess whether these guys and uh, these men and women have the, the drive and the understanding of knowing what they don't know and whether or not there's a team there. So the people aspect is, is number one. The second is what is the opportunity that they're looking at? How big is that opportunity? Is it just maybe a product idea or is it something that could build a business? How large of a market is it? How entrenched is it? How hard would it be to get to it? So what is the opportunity that if they were successful, how big of a business could they build? And, and what does that market look like and how competitive is it? Okay, so that's the second thing. The third thing is I look at the actual deal because there's a proposal from them to get resources from me, usually money. And how fair a deal is that? Is there an opportunity to get a good return on capital given the risk involved? So if it's something's a raw startup and an unproven idea, obviously you should get a higher return on your capital because you're taking a lot of risk with that. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, if it's a sort of a proven model and, and I look at the opportunities there and cash flow is already there and all that, if we think of things that, for example, like come through alpha, that's a different risk return profile. So I, I, would, I would evaluate that based on sort of the, that set of parameters. So the deal is really, what do I get for what I'm putting in? And then the fourth thing, and this is sort of a Warren Buffett axiom, is do I understand what they're doing? Do I feel like I can assess all of this? Like if you ask me to do something on blockchain, I, that's not my thing. Like I, I've certainly read about it. I, I, I've read the hype. I've seen stuff, et cetera. You're not going to get me personally to invest in blockchain stuff because it's not my area of expertise. Also, you'll find sophisticated investors make that same kind of assessment. So, for example, venture capital firms typically cluster their investments in certain categories or industries because they feel like they have expertise, a network, and so forth around those arenas. So they don't invest sort of willy-nilly. They have kind of their zone of confidence, and they pretty much stick within those. In Nashville, Tennessee, for example you would have a hard time getting a biotech deal financed because there's not a lot of people that have had a ton of biotech experience. If you want to do something in healthcare services, you will have people coming out the woodwork because they have run hospitals, they've run imaging centers, they've run surgery centers, they've done all kinds of stuff and they can assess the risk and the opportunity a lot better. So I would say if you don't understand it, you probably should stay away from it. I think that's great advice. And it's something we've actually heard from a number of podcast guests that you know, investing in what you can understand and that you know and you're comfortable with just makes sense. It makes common sense, right? And sometimes I think in the speculative-based nature of just being a human and what we see happen in the world, we see things like Bitcoin take off and we want to be the guy who turned $10,000 into $5 million and that sounds awesome, but you know the reality is, like more often than not, uh, that's going to turn out in a, in a really negative way. And so, uh, really good advice, and I think echoed by a lot of folks we've had uh, on the podcast today. Yeah, another thing I wanted to ask, and it might be 
maybe a bit of an odd question, but it came to mind. So I'm going to ask it with the clustering, right, of the venture capital firms. And obviously, a venture capital firm is made up of multiple people. You have your analysts, you have everybody's there, but it's clustered. And they achieve diversification within the companies, but within this sector, they are concentrated in that sector. So I'm trying to get at diversification mm-hmm. and understanding that a venture capital firm has that strategy and, and, you know, and maybe in their personal lives, they're diversified elsewhere. How do you approach diversification when it comes to specialization? So I think we need to think about what the ways to quote unquote diversify. And when I say sectors, you know, I could say healthcare and technology, those are sectors, but they are so broad that within them, even if you did only quote unquote healthcare investments, there are many, many different ways to play. If I said we were only investing in traditional hospital companies, now there I've got concentration of risk. Okay. But if I think about kind of across the healthcare spectrum, I have, I have a different view of quote unquote diversification at that point. So I think there's, there's that aspect of how broad the quote unquote sectors are. Now within that, I can certainly pick categories or types or more narrow fields that even if I bet on a few horses, if you will, within those categories, um, I can still diversify my risk. And in fact, if you bet on the right category, sometimes the categories are going to do well, even though the horses may not be all that great. And you're looking sort of for fundamental things that are going to drive the business there. So, you know, for me personally, when I think about diversification, there's only a, a certain percentage of my, my financial worth that I will allocate toward early stage stuff because they are ultimately the riskiest of the bunch. And then there are certain things that I will put in in other categories. And I try to diversify myself across, if you will, asset classes. Perfect example, you know, with with Alpha is, you know, they've they've got a certain set of assets in the real estate arena, and that's appropriate for a certain percentage. And the risk return profile is is actually quite good there compared to if I'm going to do a startup where Basically, they're often binary. It's zero or a hundred, and usually nothing in between. So I tr- I try to look at kind of what what my own how I would allocate my own portfolio, so to speak, depending upon whether I'm going to spend time on something. Yeah, because a lot of people are a lot more people than ever are starting to see the benefit of diversifying into real estate, like what alpha does. So we, we speak with a lot of people that say, Hey, I'm maxed out in my 401k. It's all, you know, it's all in index funds and, and what have you. And they're, they're hearing about the opportunities in real estate. And this has really been growing for the past few years. And so they come and they want the diversification and, and they start here. So I really appreciate like the answer because even within the world of real estate and all, there's all kinds of ways that you can invest. I often tell people, um, people on calls that they might want to be doing active or direct investing, um, or they already are. And I say it's, 
it's not mutually exclusive to investing in a passive syndication. And then within that, you have all the different asset classes and geographic diversification. But there has really, there really have been a lot more people that have become interested in asset-based investing. Right. And I'm going to say, you know, if I wanted to invest in real estate, you know, one option would be to go, try to go flip a house, right? That's a lot of work, a lot of energy, and I might make more money on a percentage basis, but I don't want to screw with that. I'd rather put my money with folks that are professionally looking at this and are doing it consistently and have developed an expertise and, and partner with them than, than try to kind of reinvent the wheel. That doesn't mean I might not buy a piece of real estate because I think it's a great opportunity. But if you're thinking about, you know, kind of portfolio allocation stuff, you're better off finding the people that know what they're doing and, and letting them do it for you as long as the incentives are aligned. Yeah. That's always, that's always really important is that alignment, that alignment of incentives. So that's really great. That's really great advice. I'd like to lead from there and ask you more broadly now how you think about wealth and wealth building for yourself and your family legacy. Just what do you think about, how do you think about wealth? Well, I'll start a little philosophically on that one. Wealth and a rich life are not necessarily financial in nature. And so I'll, I'll say that, I mean, I, I think the question is more about their financial stuff, but I'm going to say that, you know, having a rich life, having one that you, you are, are proud of, that you are getting the things out of life that you want, you know, that to me is real wealth. And so I know for me personally, being in a professor role and being able to work with folks and help improve them, that has created a very rich and, and a great return for me just from that aspect of it, which is to see pe- other people do well. That to me has created personal wealth. And I would get these, I have a file of letters from my former students who have said, basically, you changed my life. In a, in a good way. And whenever I'm, you know, <laughs> I want to feel good, I get that file out and I will pull those letters out and think about that. And it's, it's just super rewarding. So I think about wealth in that way, sort of primarily is like, what is life doing the things for you? As far as the financial aspect of things, you know, for me, the, the money hasn't been the goal. It's been solving a cool problem or working with interesting people or building an organization or whatever. And I feel like the money part comes along with that if you're successful. So I think, you know, if, and some people have been very successful saying, Hey, I just want to make a bunch of money or whatever. No, I want to good. I want to do cool stuff. I want to do things that make me happy. And, and so I'm more focused on that. And it seems like the rest of that has come along in, in the process. In fact, I think if you're too fixated on it, then sometimes that's going to de- de- hinder you. And there are certain projects and things that I'll take on. Like for me, one of the most valuable things I have now is my time. And so I am very judicious about where I will spend time and with whom I will spend time. And, you know, the old expression, life is too short to be dealing with, you know, I'm just not going to do it. So that's now that being said, having money is 
better generally than not having money and being able to do the things that you want to do when you want to do them, that's a good thing too. And so a lot of people want to create enough money and enough wealth that they have flexibility and they can provide for their families and do the things that you want. It's, it's really interesting. I actually ask this question. I teach a class called learning to thrive, which is um, basically what do you want to do with your life? And I asked in that, I asked the question, what if you won the lottery? What would you do? And the answers I get back are usually, well, I would want to provide for my family, make sure they could get an education, do all that stuff. Some people want to buy an island, you know, in the Caribbean or whatever. But most are trying to figure out a way to give back, to get that what I would call personal wealth or the kind of things that we talked about beforehand, that intrinsic sense of worth by doing good things. And so I think that's, that's consistent for a lot of people. It's like you get to the point and if you, if you look at surveys of happiness and how happy people are and that sort of thing, there's like a threshold of money where people, you know, they don't have to worry about their next meal. They have a, a nice place to live, et cetera. And then kind of above that, the happiness meter doesn't go up very much. So it's about what is enough that's going to give you the flexibility and the ability to do the things that you want to do, care about, and those often have to do with family and free time and, and something that's rewarding to you. You just gave such a beautiful, multidimensional answer around wealth. Thank you so much for that. It was like you just took it from like so many different dimensions and really, really beautifully stated. Thank you so much. That I, I, and I agree. And a lot of our guests say the same thing. And a lot of people we speak to as well, they're, they're looking for, yes, you know, money, wealth, returns, but they're also looking for a way to live a better life, to spend more time with their families and, and to give back. Like there's so many different aspects to it. So really appreciate your your input on that and your perspective. Thank you. Yeah. So that said, you know, thank you for just being on the podcast with us today and, and sharing just sharing so much. I think that's such a great place to to end off. I, I really I thought I had something, but I don't. <laughs> it just was so it was so perfect. So I just really want to say thank you for you know, for everything and everything that you're doing. Thanks for helping Alpha get started and still being part of our company. Um, we value you so much here. I'm really, really grateful for you. Well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to be on the, the podcast today. And I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. You're building a really cool organization that's doing great stuff and providing an opportunity for people. And I'm thrilled if I, if I evaluate the people mm-hmm. on this opportunity, they're outstanding. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to get involved. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, John. Yeah. Thanks, John. I really appreciate you taking the time. This was, this is really good. I think a lot of the physicians in the network, but everyone generally will find this, this to be particularly uh, insightful. So thank you, Tom. We really do appreciate it. Great. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at 
podcast at alphaeye.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.